Well, good morning and welcome to Wheaton Bible Church's Polar Bear Club. You are among God's choicest bears, I guess, or, or, or servants. In the 23 years I've been here, there's only been one time that we've canceled church on Sunday, and that was all 18 years ago or so. It was a long time ago, and we canceled because we got tons of snow. And it was interesting to me afterwards uh, that people were upset about that, about three of them. <laughs> but we are delighted that you are here this December is turning out to be by far the worst December weather-wise for people to get to church on Sunday, not just in the 20-some years I've been here, but in the history of the human race. It's just been crazy, and here we are with this cold weather, and I, you know, yet God is sovereign, right? I mean, we believe God is sovereign. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of our lives. Not he, uh, he knows every hair on our head. And I'm just praying, okay, Lord, would you have mercy on us when we get to Christmas Eve? You know, could we get a break uh, this month? And so far, the forecast looks good. Now, have, have you heard about, you know, this, this cold? Um, have you heard how cold is it? Well, it is so cold uh, that Starbucks is now offering coffee on a stick. <laughs> that false teeth chatter in their glass. Have you heard that this year, for the first time in the history of Chicago, Chicago politicians are keeping their hands in their own pockets? <laughs> I mean, it is so cold outside, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that, but um, it is so cold outside that when you take a shower inside, you get hail. <laughs> and when you take out the garbage, it refuses to go. No, 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 don't do this to me. But enough of that. You get the idea. It is really cold. But this is Christmas. I mean, this is the advent of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and according to the Bible, this is the greatest miracle of all miracles. God became a man. And there are only three approaches to God. Only three Irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Or secularism, moralism, and salvation by grace. Now, irreligion says, I, I don't believe in God. I don't want anything to do with God. I, you know, my life is uh, totally apart from God. Religion, on the other hand, says, oh man, I, I believe in God, but I can merit my way to God by my good works, my good deeds. But the gospel says, no, God has accomplished salvation for me through the perfect life, the perfect death, the perfect resurrection of Jesus Christ. So where secularism can make people selfish and individualistic and moralism can make people self-righteous, and exclusionary. It's a gospel of grace that Jesus was born at Christmas to die on the cross for our brokenness and for our sin that alone delivers us uh, from uh, the uh, selfishness of secularism on the one hand, the, the self-sovereignty of it all, 
and then the smug self-righteousness of moralism. Now, why do I begin this way? Why do I mention this? Because it's Christmas. It's the, co- it's the gospel, not irreligion or religion. That is the only valid approach to the living God. And what I want to do today is unpack that relative to the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to demonstrate that, if you will. I want to show you this. So grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. And let's go almost all the way to the end of the New Testament. To the first epistle of John. Now the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote at the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And then right before the book of Revelation, there's three epistles of John that he also wrote. And we're going to look at chapter 1, of first john now last week lon was in this chapter this section and he focused primarily on verse seven i'm going to back up i want to focus this morning on the first four verses so follow with me as we read first john chapter one and verse one that which was from the beginning now the beginning could be the moment of christ's birth there could be the beginning of christ's earthly ministry Uh, But most people, including myself, believe this is talking about eternity past. Jesus' pre-existence. The fact this is a claim that Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. It's the same language John uses in the Gospel of John in chapter 1 right at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. We see this here. So what John is doing is making this amazing statement that Jesus, who we were able, as, as we'll read, we were able to hear, see, and touch, is a preexistent, infinite God. So let's continue. That which we heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. Now that's all a reference to Jesus. Verse 2, this, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now you may be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? There's nothing here specifically about the birth of Christ, nor, nor any of the events surrounding the birth of Christ, no Mary and Joseph, shepherd, star, angels singing, uh, things like that. But what we do have here is this beautiful picture. It's like a summary statement of the significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the reality, the significance, and a couple of other things. So what I want to do is look at what John is telling us in terms of what Christmas isn't, what it is, what it brings or what it offers, and why so many, so many people down through history have had such a struggle identifying Jesus correctly. So let's begin in verse 1 with what John tells us the birth of Christ isn't. And what he says is it isn't a fairy tale, make-believe. 
So in verse 1, John is writing about Jesus. And what does he say? He says, well, we have heard him, we have seen him, and we touched him with our very own hands. And then he talks about hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, Jesus appearing throughout these next couple of verses. And what I want you to know, and this is the important piece, is these three verbs, heard, seen, and touched, were the three main types of witness testimony in ancient courts of law. So as one New Testament scholar puts it, uh, John isn't making conversation here, he's making a deposition. A testimony under, under oath. This is the language, he's using the language of the courts. And John is insisting with this language that Jesus isn't make-believe. Jesus isn't a fairy tale. So he says, we really did hear him. We really did uh, see him. We really did touch him. And I'm writing this so the whole world will know that Jesus did live. Jesus did die. Jesus was raised from the dead. In other words, what we have here is eyewitness testimony. Stated publicly, which you don't do if it's refutable. And what I want you to understand is here in these four verses, John is beginning this epistle exactly the same way Matthew begins his gospel. Because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then in the next couple paragraphs, he gives us a truckload of specific names of real people who were the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Now, why? Why does Matthew begin the, his gospel, this is the genealogy, with all these names? Why doesn't he begin once upon a time? Like the fables do, or Star Wars. Matthew says, this is the genealogy. He does that because he's claiming Jesus isn't a metaphor. Jesus isn't a character of fiction. This isn't a fable we're talking about. Jesus Christ is real. And here in our passage, John is doing exactly the same thing. Now some people um, point out this is the difference between advice and news. What's advice? Advice is counsel about what you should do. Now, if you think about it, this is what all the fables are all about. He or she did this, it was heroic, therefore uh, you do it as well. Uh, uh, fables are stories about what you and I should do. It's advice. But news is of a whole different category because news isn't a report about, or isn't a statement about what you should do. It's a report, rather, about what has already been done. And John is saying, Jesus Christ, Christmas itself, isn't make-believe, it isn't fable, it isn't fiction, it isn't fake news. It's a factual eyewitness news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle of all miracles, God became tiny. God became a man. And John says, I touched him. We touched him. 
So according to John, the Christmas story isn't fiction. Now let's go on. Well, what is it according to John? Well, John here then moves and tells us that the birth of Jesus Christ is the divine demonstration that salvation is by grace. Now what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. When you do something for someone who doesn't deserve it, that's grace. In the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it's Joseph with his brothers who betrayed them. Betrayed Joseph, rather. Joseph extends them grace. It's what you mothers do all day long with your children. You extend them grace. It dominates healthy marriages and healthy friendships. It's grace. Now, how do we see grace here in these verses? Well, look at verse 1. In verse 1, Jesus is called the word of life. Then in verse 2, Jesus is called eternal life. Why? Because John is telling us that Jesus doesn't merely give life, bring life, offer life. Jesus is life, physical, emotional, spiritual, eternal life. That it's of such a whole different category that it's beyond our human understanding. You know, think of the quality of your life versus the quality of your grass right now. Times of millions, times millions. That's the, the kind of life Jesus brings us. It's, it's a whole different animal. It's qualitatively uh, and by nature different. Now, what I want you to understand here is that the founders of all the major religions of the world point to this life, uh, you know, this spiritual life, this eternal life, you know, life with God in heaven or whatever it's called. And then what do they do? They say, well, here are the things you have to do in order to attain this life. John is saying Jesus is eternal life come to us, and there's nothing you and I have to do to attain it. Jesus accomplished it all in his life, death, and resurrection. It's all been done for us. This is salvation by grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. God offers it to us in Jesus Christ. This is what Christians mean by the gospel. Now, at this point, some people say, no, 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 wait, slow down. This is Christian doctrine. And, you know, doctrine about the work of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, what you Christians teach, you know, uh, you, back off. Because what really matters today is, is that each of us live life as we see fit as long as we don't hurt anybody. But here's the problem with that. In denying Christian doctrine, they're affirming, they're asserting another doctrine of a different type. And actually, what's interesting about that doctrine, you know, just live however you want to live as long as you don't hurt anybody. What's very interesting about it, it's a crazy mix of secularism on the one hand and religion on the other. 
moralism. Because it assumes, you know, we aren't so bad that we need a Savior and we aren't so weak that we can't carve out a life of our own successfully. And we read these first four verses and what is John saying? John is saying that is wrong. It won't work. Now last Saturday, as I mentioned two Sundays, or this past, um, not yesterday, but a week ago last Saturday, I had the privilege of marrying our daughter Christine. It was a, a beautiful, if you remember last uh, weekend, the weather, uh, as the wedding started, it started to snow, and the wedding was just beautiful, but the problem then became flights were canceled like crazy. Guests couldn't get out of town, and so we had a house full for about 72 hours, and we thought it was just going to be a wedding. And we just had a, a blast. But anyways, during, uh, as I'm speaking to Christine and, and Daniel, I, I used an illustration that I uh, read somewhere else. And the illustration goes like this. Imagine an old bridge uh, that ha that's full of cracks, stress fractures, hairline fractures that you can't see with the naked eye. When a 10-ton truck drives over that bridge, those cracks, those defects open because of the strain the truck puts on the bridge. Now, the truck didn't create those fractures. It merely revealed them. And such is marriage. Your spouse is like a truck. You guys are good. That drives right over your heart. Right through your heart. And your spouse, marriage doesn't create your weaknesses, it exposes them. And the same thing is true with life, with jobs, with stress, with pain, with health issues. Those don't create your weaknesses. They merely reveal them. And so irreligion comes along and says, oh, just ignore them. And religion comes along on the other end and says, you can fix them yourself. But the gospel says, no, no, time out. Those fractures, those structural defects go too deep. They're too deeply embedded in the human heart. And when you look within, you see arrogance, you see selfishness, you see racism, you see insecurity, you see fear, uh, uh, idols, disordered loves, and on and on. And so the gospel says, in light of that, in light of the fact that you're an old bridge with these fractures, we invite you to cast yourself upon Jesus who loves you so much he died for you. And then looking to the suffering, the rejection, the torture, and the death, the alienation that Jesus Christ endured for you, you find acceptance from God. Forgiveness, safety, security, and peace, and, and on and on. Now this is the Christian gospel. It's why John here is emphasizing life. Jesus who brings life. 
is life. And life here is salvation by grace, in contrast to irreligion and religion. Now let me take this a step further. Uh, Let's talk about what this life offers us, what Christmas offers, what Jesus offers. I want you to see two things, one in verse 3, the second in verse 4. So according to verse 3, what John is claiming, and this is, uh, it's impossible to get our minds around this, Jesus offers fellowship with the living God. So look at verse 3. Let's read it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, fellowship here isn't, hi, how you doing? Hey, it's cold outside. Do you think there's any way the Bears are going to win another game, you know? Uh, uh, Fellowship isn't just conversation. Uh, The Greek word behind the English word fellowship is a famous Greek word koinonia. And it refers to the deepest of bonds between humans. It refers to unity, togetherness, to sharing a a brain, to trading hearts, uh, to the intimacy of of friendships, of family relationships. And amazingly, what John is saying is Jesus offers us that kind of koinonia with God. Now, Christian years ago used to use the word communion to describe this, fellowship with God. What did they mean by communion? Well, what they meant is communion with God is a robust, multidimensional, daily experience of the sweetness of Jesus in my life. It's what the psalmist is getting at. When the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist is inviting us to experience, to feel something, uh, to taste and see the goodness of God, the presence of God in our lives, in our affairs, good times and bad times. It's what the apostles, what John, who heard Jesus, saw Jesus, and touched Jesus, experienced. It's koinonia. The experience of the sweetness, the goodness, the love of God in our lives. Now, you've got to understand, here, Christianity, among all the religions of the world, stands alone. Why? Because Christianity offers a vibrant personal experience with a personal God communion. And frankly speaking, personally, the older I get as a man, the more I realize that nothing, nothing else in life pales or compares, I should say, is more important than my daily experience of union, communion, and fellowship with God. To live in light of his love and his goodness, to be conscious of it, So by the Spirit, I put to death the misdeeds of my heart, the fractures, the structural defects. 
Now, what about you? I know an older Christian, a, a godly man, white-haired guy, lives in another state, has adult kids. And man, he loves these adult kids. He prays for them. He, he, he calls them. He and his wife visit them when uh, they can. But their adult kids are really busy. They've got a lot going on, demanding jobs, uh, uh, children's schedules, sports, uh, you know, the music, all the activities. And about two years ago, this delightful godly man who really, really loves his kids realized, I can only have the kind of relationship with my kids that they want to have. And if they want to talk to me, if they want to pray with me, if they want to seek my wisdom, my ex years of experience, if they want to stay close to me, then I'm all in. But if they don't, I can't force it. Now, what kind of kid are you? What type of fellowship, communion with God do you want? Have you experienced the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months? John is telling us that Jesus brings communion, union with the living God. It's an experiential thing. Now let me go on. Let's go on to verse 4. Not only does Jesus offer fellowship, but Jesus offers joy, joy in God. So we read in verse 4, this is the last verse, we write this to make our joy complete. Now before I came to Christ, I've mentioned this before, this was a big, I mean a big problem for me because I loved my life. I loved the college scene. I, I was happy, I was content, I didn't feel all broken, busted up. Yeah, things were going, uh, going well, and God brought people into my life that uh, started talking to me about Jesus, a number of people, some really sharp people, Stanford grads that were running a Young Life campus ministry where I was going to school in, in Dallas, and these guys had answers. And so I, my heart was warming to Christianity, but I, I kept thinking, you know, I'm not sure I want to do this because I'm not sure these guys have any fun. And I want to have fun in life. Uh, you know, it seems like all these guys do is study the Bible. And so I went back and forth, uh, you know, about this. And I, I never really expressed it. I, I just thought, and then Jesus Christ supernaturally invaded my life. Jesus saved me and began to rebuild me from the inside out. He began to repair and heal my fractures, my structural defects. And I realized uh, fairly quickly into my experience of walking with Jesus that my previous conception of joy was all fizzle and bubbles. Superficial, tied to my circumstances, tied to my weekends. And I discovered in Jesus Christ, and this is what John is talking about in verse 4, this incredible, profound, deep joy that transcends circumstances. That gives us a peace and a confidence before the living God. 
And my concepts of, of fun morphed and became broader, more mature. And for the last uh, four decades of walking with Jesus, this joy has been a significant, constant part of my life that's carried me through some tragedy and the deepest of life's difficulties. Do you know this joy? Do you taste it? Do you experience it? Now let's go on. Let me conclude, take a couple minutes here to wrestle with this question. If Jesus is so amazing and the joy he brings is so incredible, why do so many people, why are so many people today missing Jesus? Why is Jesus so hard to grasp? Well, there are lots and lots of answers to that question. And what I want to do is focus on one. I, I think others are right who point out that one of the main reasons people miss Jesus Christ today is because of his commonness, his ordinariness. We live in a celebrity culture, right? And, and we're about, all about celebrities. And the splash and the, and the sizzle. Yet what does John tell us? John tells us that uh, here, here comes Jesus. And the one who was preexistent, who has existed from all eternity, who was infinite and extraordinary in splendor, became tiny, finite, ordinary. At Christmas, the uncommon became common. And yet, what do we do? We spend all our lives looking for the glitz, the glamour, the bigger, the better, the, the power, the, the, the triumph, uh, the life of ease and comfort. And, and what are we doing? We're spending all our chips trying to fill cisterns that do not satisfy, making deposits in investments that won't pay dividends. And along comes this commoner by the name of Jesus. And he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in splendor. He was born in poverty and homelessness and disgrace. Most people felt his mother was an adulterer. And the only significant cultural piece or component of Jesus' birth was the fact that Herod tried to kill him. And yet we want celebrity. And Jesus was a refugee. And Isaiah tells us that as a matter of fact, his commonness was so ordinary, it was almost unbecoming. Look at what Isaiah said in prophecy 700 years before Christ was born. He, that is Jesus, had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by mankind, he was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in 
low or no esteem. Red carpet, splash, superhero, not this Jesus. Instead, Jesus comes along and drives a dagger in the heart of elitism and snobbery. Glitz and and glamour. Yet the world wants spectacle. Jesus brings salvation, the uncommon made common. Now maybe uh, you're here and you think Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus was just too ordinary. Too common for me. Or or maybe you think that um, salvation by grace is naive, it's simplistic, it's way too easy. Maybe your family of origin has said to you, or maybe it's been friends that have said to you, or maybe there's this voice that keeps playing in the back of your head from way back in the past that says, man, it's crazy to believe that you could have lived the life you lived and done the things you've done, and then all you have to do is believe. And what John is saying is, you're wrong. That's wrong. The infinite, extraordinary, uncommon God became common. I touched him. I experienced him. And he is available for the taking. So the Christian life does not begin, it does not continue by high achievements, success, and status but by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you've never done so, I invite you to come to this King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you bow with me and let's pray. If any of you are are here and God has been speaking to you, and God has been whispering, and the gospel, God's grace in Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross for your sins, is making sense and the light is dawning, I want to invite you to come to Jesus right now. And say with me something like, God, I... I confess to you my sin, my emptiness, my brokenness. Thank you that at Christmas you sent Jesus to die for that sin. And now I say yes. And I receive Jesus. I receive the forgiveness and the acceptance and the love you offer me. And Father, for the others among us who have come to Christ, we pray, I pray, God, that we would keep Jesus at the center. 
and you would deliver us from getting sucked in to um, the glitz and the glamour. And we would see Jesus alone as beautiful. Amen.